Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the show. Now, if you've been listening to this program or many others here at CKNW, we spent a significant amount of time talking about uh, decriminalization. We've also talked uh, about uh, many communities in British Columbia, from Kamloops to Campbell River, uh, either implementing or debating uh, the issue of decriminalization, uh, but also uh, bringing in potential bylaws that would restrict drug use uh, in parks, uh, in uh, on beaches or in the downtown area because of decriminalization uh, r- uh, rules that were brought in here in British Columbia. Now, of course, our approach to safe supply and decriminalization, many of you said, is um, in contrast to what you see uh, in Alberta, where the focus uh, is not on decriminalization, but they focus on treatment programs, um, uh, you know, largely based on a, a similar system in Portugal, uh, but they have really focused on treatment treatment and not decriminalization. It's a program that uh, their uh, premier has talked about uh, and even conservative uh, party leader Pierre Polyev has regularly uh, touched upon uh, even when he visits this program as well. Well, recently our next guest uh, had an article in the Globe and Mail uh, where uh, he informed us that Washington Governor Jay Inslee signed into a law a new policy that keeps most drugs illegal and increases penalties for possession. Now, this is interesting for Washington State, often referred to as a very liberal state, similar in politics to British Columbia, but their approach is very different uh, compared to, let's say, uh, British Columbia or even uh, the state south of them, uh, Oregon. Joining me now to talk about the issue uh, is Nathan Vanderclip. He's an international correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief with the Globe and Mail. Nathan, welcome. Uh, Hello. Uh, Lots to talk about here. Uh, Any sense of why uh, Governor Jay Inslee in Washington last month decided to sign into law sort of a, not a conservative view uh, or approach to this issue, but certainly very different from, let's say, Oregon or British Columbia? Right. Uh, I I mean, there's there's a couple of reasons. One is that their hand was sort of forced. There was a Supreme Court decision in the United States that basically knocked out their entire possession law in the state of Washington. Um, and so they had a choice. Either they needed a new law by July 1st of this year, or their entire possession law was going to disappear, which would have effectively meant the full legalization of all forms of narcotic possession. Um, so, they, you know, they, 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 they negotiated this. There was an, an interim law that created a misdemeanor offense for possession, um, and, and then they negotiated for a couple of years, and they came down to a special session earlier this year, yeah. which ultimately led to them creating this new law, which makes possession a gross misdemeanor, which is a slightly, uh, comes with slightly larger penalties than a misdemeanor. But I think the, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the technical reason, but I, I think the real reason is um, they were negotiating this new law in the midst of everything that took place in the pandemic. Um, and throughout the 
western seaboard, the Pacific seaboard of North America. Like in many places, there were rises in homelessness, there were rises in uh, criminal activity, there was rises in violence and, and, and all sorts of negative indicators. Um, and, and I think those just created an atmosphere uh, in, in which it just wasn't deemed to be politically tenable to move forward with something like decriminalization in Washington state. Um, now, you know, the, how that system runs is different from how British Columbia or Canada runs. Now, I'm based on your article, the city councilors and mayor in Seattle think differently. Right. And so this was interesting because um, because they went with a gross misdemeanor offense. That is something that is prosecuted at lower levels in their court system, in in municipal and county levels. Um, And so the city of Seattle went ahead to try to create effectively a mirroring legislation uh, to, to bring in place the same uh, the same penalties and the same sorts of things into uh, their local city code, uh, which would, of course, govern the way the city prosecutor can operate. Um, and that was turned down. And it was it was interesting to see because um, it was uh, a city council meeting that took place this week. It was raucous. Many of the speakers were interrupted. There was lots of yelling and there was lots of shouting. Um, and it ended up becoming a bit of a nail biter um, coming into the meeting. Uh, everybody expected uh, this measure to pass by a 5-4 vote. And then partway through the meeting, one of the city councilors actually said, listen, I just can't do this. And he switched his vote. Um, and so they went against it. So it's, it's really, I think, uh, a, a window into uh, the degree to which um, these um, sort of battles between decriminalization and recriminalization really stand on a knife's edge in a lot of jurisdictions. So now in the case of Washington State, then Seattle is a bit of an island compared to the rest of the state. Yeah, I think it's probably going to be messy. I mean, the police uh, can still uh, arrest people. Um, the county, King County in Seattle, can still prosecute people if they choose to do so. Uh, but the city of Seattle itself won't be prosecuting them. So it, it, at the moment, there's a bit of a jurisdictional mess there. Um, you mentioned the issue of the Western Seaboard. This is an ongoing issue. I mean, we, people have talked about uh, liberal San Francisco and, and the doom loop down there, Los Angeles and its problems. This is just a, every major city seems to be going through this issue, has, isn't it? Yeah, and I think this is something that, that people, I mean, I, I think there's often a lot of anger at local politicians for doing enough. And, you know, but clearly it is local poli- it falls to local politicians to come up with solutions, the local communities to come up with solutions. But I think it is also worth keeping in mind that many of the problems that we see uh, in Vancouver, many of the issues and challenges we see in Vancouver are shared issues. And if you look at downtowns, uh, you know, in, uh, in Oregon, in Washington, in California, uh, there are many parts of those downtowns that don't look terribly different from what we see in Vancouver. And an Oregon system is probably closer to ours here in British Columbia then. The decriminalization system, yes, yeah. And so basically, um, there's, there's came about in an odd way. It came about through a ballot initiative. So basically, it went to a ballot. The voters said yes to decriminalization. And as a result, decriminalization was put into place. Uh, the idea was that they would decriminalize possession, um, but that uh, they would do that in concert with taking a whole bunch of their marijuana tax revenues and putting those into uh, treatment programs and the like. The problem was the decriminalization, the, the, the lack of consequences or the, 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 the removal of punishments um, happened very quickly, and it took a while for the money to start flowing and for the treatment programs to start building, build up. Uh, so you had decriminalization that, that came into 
uh, a situation where there's a real gap in some of those services. It, 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 you can tell how um, jurisdictions are struggling with this issue. We had uh, uh, Mario Canseco from Research Co. on this program uh, earlier this week, and he said that you know generally British Columbia and certainly the polling that he's done are supportive of safe supply um, or, or supportive of treatment centers, but then, and, and the numbers are in the 50 and 60% range, if not higher, but once you get to decriminalization, then the number is only 40%. It really speaks to, I think, how the public here in British Columbia is struggling with this issue. Right. And, and I think, you know, part of the problem is, is that I, I, some of the arguments that are made for decriminalization don't square particularly well with the facts. In Oregon, for example, mm-hmm. one of the arguments was that it, uh, by by decriminalizing possession, simple possession of narcotics, it would create a greater racial equity in terms of arrest rates. But what advocates never really put out there was that you know when it came to arrests for simple possession of narcotics, those had virtually disappeared anyways. Police had actually stopped largely enforcing those rules. So yes, it has reduced. Uh, the number of arrests of um, different minority groups in, in, in Oregon, um, but, you know, from a very, very low number. And, and I think what those who are advocating for some form of continued criminalization are saying is not that their intent is to throw people in jail for getting busted with a few grams of something on them, um, but that, you know, it, when, when there are people who are struggling with addiction, um, the, the possibility, the, 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 the levers of the criminal justice system can be an effective way to put people into treatment. That's controversial. Um, I think there, there are lots of care providers, for example, who will say one of the chief obstacles to people um, confronting addiction um, is, is, is to go into places where they might have to acknowledge that and potentially face consequences. So th- th- these, are, these, are, these are sort of, there's a great deal of controversy on both sides of this. Um, but, but the argument, I think, that, that we've seen, particularly on the West Coast, in terms of those who favor some form of continued uh, criminal penalties, is not so much that it, that it leads to jail, but that it leads to treatment. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Nathan Vanderclip, international correspondent with uh, the Globe and Mail. We were talking about Washington State uh, enacting new laws uh, when it comes to hard drugs. Uh, we're going to uh, change uh, topics uh, just for a moment uh, because about uh, about 15 minutes before we went to air, we learned that David Johnston resigns as special rapporteur on foreign interference. Of course, Mr. Johnston was uh, asked by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau way back in March to look into allegations that China... Um, meddled in our past two elections. He stepped down today. Um, uh, many uh, critics, uh, including the opposition, said that he was unfit for the job because of his close relationship or personal connections uh, to uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, Mr. Johnson said that uh, uh, because of the polarizing nation, uh, nature of the conversation over the last month, it's best that he uh, stepped down. Now, Nathan, um, we had obviously <laughs> booked you for the show to talk about your uh, latest story in regards to Washington State. But uh, when, a, when an individual has worked eight years uh, in China, I am not going to give up the opportunity to ask a few questions on this. Your thoughts on uh, a late Friday afternoon resignation in Ottawa? Well, in retrospect, I, I think, you know, we, we can say that sort of the writing was on the wall beginning last week when the House of Commons passed a motion uh, calling for his resignation. I mean, it, it, that was not a vote of non-confidence in the Liberal government, because, you know, they still have the supply of the NDP, but it was a vote of non-confidence in David Johnston himself. And for someone who whose, uh, you know, position was effectively to be one of the guardians of democracy, it, it, it started to feel awfully anti-democratic for him to continue in that post. But it is kind of 
it's, it's, it is it is remarkable to hear you you call March a long time ago. Um, <laughs> really, it's not that long time ago, uh, but you know, a tremendous amount of water has, uh, has has come into the bridge since then. Yes, absolutely. Um, can we do? what we need to do without a public inquiry? Uh, or do you think it's just the very nature, uh, the fact that things have gotten so political and uh, the evidence, or at least some evidence that's been provided and the conversation that's occurred over the last few months, that it, it, it's inevitably, inevitably we have to have a public inquiry? So I think, I mean, there's been a tremendous amount of rhetoric spilled around this whole issue. And, and I think... If you look for sort of sort of a first principles argument against the tenure of David Johnston, you end up saying that he was too much a representative of the status quo and, and that someone who is um, sort of uh, that deeply representative of the status quo cannot be relied upon to push Canada beyond a status quo, which has, of course, brought all of these problems with foreign interference and the rest. So I, I think the question is, you know, what's, what sort of individual or what sort of process can move Canada uh, beyond that status quo into, into sort of a conversation about, you know, the, the reality of some of the issues that we have, uh, as, as well as, you know, real changes that, that can help to address it. Um, an inquiry is certainly one way to do it. I mean, it's an adversarial process, and, and I think perhaps that's what's needed right now. Does that end up with the kind of... Um, solutions uh, or focus on solutions that we need, or does it end up being a sort of a stage for more political grandstanding? I, I, I don't know. Um, Johnson himself suggested that it might be better to come up with um, uh, a replacement for him that has the agreement of all the different political parties. But I mean, what are the chances of that happening? Yeah. And especially with, um, you know, election has to be held by 2025. Everything is so polarized. And uh, I would think the Liberals uh, wouldn't want uh, to, to call an inquiry and then have it drag on for a year, two years in the midst of uh, an election campaign potentially as well. But there's no doubt. I mean, you look at countries like Australia that, you know, that still rely on heavily on trade with China. They were able to, to make significant changes in regards to their relationship with China, how they respond to China. Uh, in many ways, I think that's still the litmus test. That's the nation we should be looking towards. And even in the UK, I guess, in regards to um, you know, some of the things that they've been looking at as well. I mean, the, the, the examples are around us in regards to how we respond to China. Yeah, they certainly are. Um, and uh, as far as some of the structural ways of doing that, as far as, you know, changing some of the laws in Canada around foreign interference, I mean, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the ugly reality in some ways about many of the things that we have learned as Canadians about foreign interference in the last few months is that many of them are perfectly legal. Many of them have not resulted in investigations by the RCMP or by uh, 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 the overseers of our elections uh, because they are on their face perfectly legal. And, and so that, that's the sort of thing that can only be fixed by changing laws. Um, and so, you know, in, in some ways, I think, you know, you can't find much to disagree with David Johnson when, when he says, well, we really, the, the focus of our conversation should be on looking forward on what to change, on how to do these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, can you really have that conversation if, if you are not sort of creating some sort of proper accounting of what has happened and some proper accountability for what has happened? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for your time today. 